Great. Um, today is my eldest child's 10th birthday. Uh, and I said to her, what would you like for your birthday? And she said, what I'd really love is for you to say goodnight to me. Um, so I'm going to slip out once I've finished and go home and give that final present to my daughter. Is that OK? Um, I'm sure you'd agree that how could I refuse such a simple request? She finds it hard that I'm not there on a Sunday night. And uh, when she realized it was her birthday on a Sunday, she was like, gutted. You're preaching on my birthday. What is that like? Yeah, we won't put that on the recording. <laughs> so yeah, you need your Bibles open. Uh, we're in Revelation tonight. We're going to finish this whole series that we've been working our way through over the last few weeks. And so turn to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read some of 21 and a little bit of 22 as we get going this evening. But the aim is that uh, you will leave uh, this series with a sense of excitement about all that lies ahead for us and for God's world. Fresh confidence that in the end, all shall be well. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for those, these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Move over to verse 22 of chapter 21. It says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And pause while we change microphones. Someone's going to have fun editing this talk, aren't they?
Can you hear me? Yeah. Big up to Andy, Mr. Tech tonight. Got here at four o'clock. Legend. Okay. Uh, keep that open as we try to wrap things It's not. It doesn't like me. Okay. Have we taken the offering yet? Right. Anyone feel like you want to buy a new microphone for me for Christmas? Feel free. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, um, I was uh, on my way to conduct a funeral. Uh, there was a man in our church, David Beecham. Some of you will know him. He'd been a member of the church for over 60 years, and I was part of the, the clergy team doing his funeral. And I, I had so I had my collar on. I looked like a proper vicar, and I went into a petrol station to fill up the car. And I was in the queue to pay for my petrol, uh, and the man in front of me turned round and he had a newspaper in his hand, uh, and he started shaking it wildly at me, and said. It's just terrible, isn't it? I mean, like, what are we going to do? This is awful. What do you think? And I was like, you know, trying to get my head into gear. I sort of looked at the headline. It was something about Donald Trump. I said, well, um, he goes, you know, it's awful. I said to my wife, uh, if we vote to leave Europe, we're going to leave and we're going to move to America. And then they go and vote for Donald Trump to be the president. I can't go to America. Where am I going to go? He said, what do you think? And I was thinking, um, I just want to get out of here. Uh, I said, uh, uh, New Zealand's really nice, um, which is where we used to live. I know that. And uh, he, he's like, OK. Anyway, back to my first question, he said, what do you think? And then he looked at me. He said, what do you think the end of the story's like? Essentially, I'm paraphrasing slightly. But that was what he was asking. And he said, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that good people go to heaven when they die. Everyone else is going to burn and fry. Uh, and you're all going to float around on heavenly clouds and it'll all be lovely. That's what you're going to say, isn't it? Because you're a vicar. Actually, what he said is you're a man of the cloth. I never understand why people say you're a man or a woman of the cloth to ordain people. It's like we never use that language, ever. But somehow there's this cultural hangover. Anyway, I said, actually... I think there's a better ending to the story than that. I, I actually think the vision of heaven in the Bible is wonderful because it, it's not actually a vision of us floating up to the heavenly realms when we die, but actually of a heaven-earth um, world reintegrated as God intended all along. At which point he went, oh, whatever, and walked out. And I was like, my moment to preach, and I blew it. Anyway, I say all of that to say that as we come to the end of the story, you and I have to get our heads around and rediscover again, uh, or, or perhaps for the first time, just how good the story, uh, the end of the story actually is. What you and I are living towards, what we're living for, what we're building for, is actually a new heaven and a new earth. God's creation finally brought to glorious completion. Actually, the very thing that God intended when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said, would you extend the garden? Do you remember that all those weeks ago? It finally is going to be done. And we're going to enjoy it forever. That's the vision of the future in the scriptures. I'm reading a book at the moment by um, a psychologist, American psychologist, uh, political psychologist called Jennifer Welsh. It's called The Return of History. Fascinating book. Someone gave it to me. And essentially what she says is uh, the, the myth of the progress of history is just that. It's a myth. This idea that we can just eventually, culture and society will sort itself out, we'll sort ourselves out, we'll progress to the end eventually. She says it's a myth. What happens is we keep short-circuiting. Crazy things happen, like 
you know, Brexit and Donald Trump, whatever you think, no one expected that. And, and actually, this idea that somehow we can just sort ourselves out, she said, we've got to stop believing that. That story's proven to be wrong. What's fascinating is she has no vision as an, uh, of an alternative. She said, I, I can't offer you an alternative. I'm like, we can. We can. We've got the best story. And we know how it ends. The lamb wins. Here's the question. Do you know the story? Do you know how the story ends? Is it, is it kind of shaping and forming how you do life? How you invest your time and your money and your relationships? Is it shaping how you understand what it is to be part of this church? I hope so. Revelation um, in the book is, is what's known as apocalyptic literature. The English word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypto, which means to reveal or to disclose, to make known. And so apocalyptic literature essentially is making known that which is unknown. And, and it uses all sorts of imagery and symbols to do that. So when you read Revelation, don't read it literally, okay? First of all, it'll just do your head in. And, and secondly, you'll have weird dreams. Like, seriously. Um, it's like, don't eat too much cheese late at night. You know, it's the same sort of category. Now, interestingly, most of the book of Revelation is not actually concerned with the future. Although, actually, what I would suggest is it helps us grasp the whole story really well. It gives us a different lens as we wrap this series up, just to look at the whole story, to make sense of everything we've been journeying through. It gives us a different viewpoint, if you like, on human history. And what you've got to do as you read Revelation is imagine that God has kind of pulled back the curtains on the heavenly throne room. He's pulled back the curtains and shown us what's been going on behind the scenes. And we see this glimpse, if you read Revelation, or this vision of the cosmic battle that's been raging since Adam and Eve ate the apple. There's this insight into understanding that everything we experience here on earth is an expression of this ultimate battle that's been going on between God and Satan, between the powers of good and the powers of evil. And John, who's writing this book, he's told, if you read the very first verse, he's told, you've got to write down uh, what I'm doing and what I'm going to do uh, for the church. It was written to the church in Asia Minor who were being uh, persecuted and oppressed by a dominant Roman culture. This bunch of early church uh, people who were terrified, who were wondering, is it worth carrying on? Can we do this? He, they get this letter and, they, and the short answer is, yes, she can. Because here's what you're really caught up in. Everything that you're facing now is, a, is basically a minor skirmish caught up in this much bigger thing that you've not been able to see, but actually God has revealed to me in this vision. And what John essentially says in the book of Revelation is, you can keep going, you can keep doing it because God triumphs in the end. There will come a day when all will be done. And between now and then, you keep going in faith because you know how the story ends. And because at the end of the story, there's a whole new thing that happens. It's totally worth it. And it would have been this huge encouragement to these early churches. There's seven churches that get a letter, an encouragement to remain faithful. It's slightly kind of challenging. You could go read them. Now, some commentators will say, well, actually, there are seven letters. Seven is the biblical number for perfection. So, in a sense, this is a letter to the whole church, past, present, and future. You and I can hear the words of Revelation and allow them to do the same thing for us that they were intended to do for those initial um, people who heard it. 
And it tells us this story of how judgment and then salvation will fall on the earth as the crucified and risen Jesus brings world's, the world's history to its conclusion, completes the redemption of all creation. So there are three things I want us to look at real quick tonight. The first is what happens when Jesus returns, and then what happens after that, the restoration of creation. And I've got a couple of thoughts on what it might mean for us today. How do we live in light of all of this? So number one, the return of Jesus. Are you ready? Good. The New Testament, I would suggest, says there are essentially three things that will happen when Jesus comes again. We know he's going to come again. Jesus is really clear. So have a look. Um, Let's get this working. Um, Have a look at this verse here in Matthew 25. This is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man, that's him, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, at this point, disclaimer. Uh, You are going to notice a whole load of can of worms tonight that we're going to notice, but I have no can opener. Okay, I have no intention of opening various cans of worms. That's time. There's a time and a place for that, but it's not tonight. Uh, Notice, though, that when Jesus comes again, it's not going to be like the time that he came the first time, which we celebrate at Christmas where Jesus slipped in off the radar, right? Comes as a little baby, born in a stable in the back end of beyond to nobody parents in a nobody town. Took a while for the world to realize what's happened. The second time Jesus comes, there will be no mistaking it. You will know something is up if you're alive when Jesus returns. It will be undeniable, okay? He will come in glory. Now, we don't know when he's coming. Lots of people have tried to work out when he's coming. I happen to be old enough to remember uh, the millennium, the turn of the millennium, 1999, and there were lots of people saying two things were going to happen. All the planes were going to fall out of the sky because they realized that computer programs hadn't been programmed to go into, the, into a new millennium. I mean, it sounds t- sort of crazy now, but at the time it was a real concern. And the second thing is that Jesus is probably going to come back. And that's to do with all sorts of ways people interpret uh, the book of Revelation, which I don't go with. Uh, and two things didn't happen. One, the planes didn't fall out of the sky, uh, and Jesus hasn't come back. Uh, here's what we do know, that only the Father knows when Jesus is coming back right? This is what Jesus says. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What we do know is that when he returns, whenever that is, could be tonight, could be in a thousand years, uh, all those who have died will rise. Everyone who's gone before us, whether or not they follow Jesus, will rise from the dead. Everyone will be risen Uh, awaiting judgment. So here's uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's biblical language for having died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. There it is again. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead in Christ will rise first, everyone else will rise, and then each one of us will face judgment. 
now, I, there's lots more I'd like to say, but we're going to put a link back to some teaching we did a couple of years ago on resurrection life, resurrection hope, uh, where we looked at um, what happens when you die and where do you go before Jesus comes back and all of that stuff. So we haven't got time to go into it tonight, but if you're interested, that will be online this week. Suffice to say uh, that I go with Tom Wright on this. He says, resurrection is life after life after death. Okay, we will die. There's life after death. We will rest in peace. And then when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, uh, those of us in Christ will rise in glory and go on into the new creation world of God. Okay, so we tend to think of like there's life after death. Actually, there's life after life after death. Okay, if you're interested in that, listen to the talks. Now, what we do know is that we're all then going to face judgment. So here's Revelation chapter 20. I saw a great white throne, and the one enthroned, that's Jesus. Nothing could stand before or against the presence. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth. We know elsewhere, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. We'll stand, we'll, we'll, we'll rise, and then we'll bow. Our knee, we'll, we'll, we'll bow down, because we'll see him as he is. And those of us who have walked with him and journeyed with him will be like, wow. And other people will be like, oh my goodness. Maybe I should have gone on that Alpha course after all. And then I saw all the dead, great and small, standing there before the throne. Notice that, all the dead, standing there before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, by the way they had lived. Notice that, okay? Uh, sea released its dead. Death and hell turned in the dead. Each man and woman was judged by the way he or she had lived. It's crystal clear, Okay. Now, I want to suggest to you that judgment is essentially two things. One, God actually is um, finishing something that he's already begun. God has begun judgment already. Remember, we've talked about how uh, the judgment of God is that we're worth saving, that that which he made in his image is still fundamentally very good, marred and scarred by sin, yes, but worth saving. And so grace and mercy are extended to us, and we're given new opportunity to come alive as humans in and through Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so God is going to finish that. But it makes sense that if God is going to come and take up full and permanent residence on earth, he needs to purify of everything that's not of him. So part of the judgment process is a purification, uh, a dealing with all of the stuff that actually wasn't right. The second thing that I think, of course, is going on is that judgment is about God calling creation to account. And ultimately, his created creatures, you and I, to account. Just like... When I am with my children, ultimately I say, I, I forgive you for what you did or didn't do. I, I forgive you, this happened about two hours ago, for throwing the remote control at your sister and, and hitting her on the head. I mean, that's quite impressive, to be honest, but just not okay. Like, I forgive you, but actually there are consequences for that, and we need to work that through. In the same way, God does that for us, okay? Uh, what we do know... It is that part of that process is being called to account on how we lived. It's a really complex area. This is like not just one can of worms. This is like a shelf, okay, of cans. So I'm not going to go into it. I just want you to notice one thing, that actually you and I will stand before God and, and he's going to say, how did you live? And my reading of it is simple, that those who said yes to Jesus, those of us who've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, probably in a sense are going to have a tougher deal because he's going to say, right, you, you, you had everything going for you. I gave you my spirit. 
How did you live? What did you do with what you knew? Did you radically rearrange your life so that everything about it could reflect and reveal my glory? Could, could, did you do everything necessary so that in and through you I could bear witness to my salvation work? Did your life speak of the kingdom of God? Did you deal with your stuff that gets in the way of you being truly human or not? Did you walk on by past those people? Whatever it is, he's going to ask us. And those who said no to Jesus in this life, they're going to be judged according to that too. So what I'm interested in is making sure that when he comes, that, that I get the best scorecard possible. Like I have no doubt that my salvation is secure. I know that I am in Christ and that that cannot be taken from me. I know that I will inherit new creation life. I know that. But I'm going to be judged on what I did with what I knew. And what I want is uh, to be able to stand before God and go, I, I did a, re a reasonable job actually. I want to deal with my stuff. I want my life to count. I hope you do too. I'm, I'm guessing you do, otherwise you wouldn't be here. There are three things that Jesus gives us as kind of indicators in the scriptures of the kind of things he's going to drill down on. Okay, you ready? You sure? I did this this morning and like eight people came up to me and said, I did not need that before Christmas, like thanks. Um, so just to warn you, all right, um, here they are. Number one, whether or not our accumulation of earthly possessions was at the expense of true wealth couple of references there. Go look them up if you're interested. Like we live in a materialistic consumerist world and the physical gifts of this life are good. Like it's nice to have nice cars and nice things. It's, there's nothing wrong, wrong fundamentally with those. What Jesus is interested in, did your pursuit of them come at the expense of your pursuit of the things of the kingdom? Did you put your hope in the wrong things? Did you cling on too much to the trappings of this life? Did you make a bigger deal out of the good life now rather than the best life then? Uh, and I'd say that, that that's a real issue for our church, uh, as in the Western church. It really is. Are we any distinctly, distinctly different, really? Put it another way, like once your own basic needs have been met, Jesus promises to meet our needs. Everything you've got left, what do you do with it? And how do you decide what you're going to do with it? Like, do you pray about it? Like, God, how much do I get to keep? Because here's my basic thinking, that what I've got left once my needs have been met is for me to meet someone else's needs. First, if God lets me get a nicer house or a car or whatever, great, but actually there's need. And it's incumbent upon me who has more than I need to make sure that someone else who doesn't has enough. Okay, tough, right? Number two, how well we served and cared for the poor. Like it's woven right through the New Testament. It's there. I don't need to say much really. If you've read the Gospels or the New Testament, you'll know. All, all I would say is I think it's more than bringing a few cans for the food bank we run. I, I think he's interested in whether you go looking for the poor, whether you know their name, whether you hear their stories. I was sat chatting the other day on the high street to one of the big issue sellers. It's like unbelievable story like I lost 20 minutes of my day but I didn't really I gained something because I got a fresh reminder of why Jesus is so essential to the salvation of the world do we welcome them into our lives our community or are they just like a group somewhere over there that we help somehow via something else 
And then third and finally, I think <laughs> if you think these t- first two are hard, I think the third one's the hardest, actually, for many of us. Like, do we forgive as freely as we've been forgiven? Like, we all want to be forgiven by God, don't we? But actually, it's fascinating. Often, it's really hard to then forgive other people. I think he's going to be interested in whether we were as radically forgiving as we were radically forgiven. I find it really sad that some of the most judgmental people on the planet often are Christians. The very people who should know that they're saved by grace. (laughs) That God didn't uh, judge them as he could, but actually that love and mercy trumps judgment. So so what kind of church are we? What kind of people are we? Are you radically forgiving or do you secretly hold grudges? Those are the three things that the scriptures say Jesus is interested in. So how do you feel? How's it, how's it going? Do you think, you know, what's he going to say? If he turned up now, what would he say? I'm like, seriously, Jesus, I'd love you to come back, but give me a couple of years. I just want to work on those for a little bit. Is that all right? Okay, now all of that is unto the restoration of creation. The, the, the end game is not that God somehow gets to have his way and judge and he's all happy. It's all so that he can release the whole of creation finally and fully into that which it was meant to be. The last two chapters of Revelation uh, mirror, in a sense, the first two chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, the bookends of the Bible. This beautiful picture of when all of this has happened, what the world will be like. We read that between the judgment and everything happening, death and Hades themselves are thrown into the fire, whatever that means. Robin's over there, you can ask him, he's our resident theologian, I have no idea. But then we have this vision of the new heaven and the new earth, where everything, everything is completely restored to its original goodness and finally completed. Paul writes this in, one, uh, in Colossians. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's all things, everything, even spiders. Bartholomew and Goheen, they say this, just as nothing in creation remained untouched by sin after Eden, so nothing in creation can remain untouched by God's redemption after Christ's victory on the cross. And just have Revelation 21 open. There's a few things to notice. John sees a vision of a new heaven and a new earth entirely cleansed from sin and evil. The old heaven and earth in which sin and death have dominated, they, they give way to a new one which the Lord, in which the Lord again rules completely. Tom Wright says that heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Like what we have to grasp is that it's a new heaven and a new earth. Two realms that were meant to be open and interlocking and overlapping together, and they were in the Garden of Eden, in the original Genesis 1 and 2 world. They will be again in the Revelation 21 and 22 world. And you and I will live on a new, in a new heaven, earth reality. And so he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven to earth. Notice verse 1, there's no more sea. That's code for chaos. All the chaos is gone. It doesn't mean there won't be beaches. All right, just chill out. It's all right. And then he says, verses 2 and 3, that there's this kind of new heavenly realm descends. We don't float up in some sort of outer body kind of disembodied heavenly reality we we get given resurrection bodies in a world that connects back together 
where God is now present fully on the earth again, just like he was in the garden. And we read verse 4, there's no more death. There's no sickness or pain. There's peace and there's harmony. Relationships between us and God are healed. Relationships between one another are healed. Relationships with creation are now healed. And we get given resurrection bodies. We will come back to life. Jesus modeled that. If you go back and read the gospel accounts, we have this resurrection Jesus. He's human, but in a slightly different form. He's still got holes in his hands that speak of, a, of his life in this world. But there's something different about him. He had a different kind of complexion, something about him. He can also walk through walls. I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, I think that'll be fun, right? Freak my kids out. Tom Wright says this. Uh, There will come a day when God will put all wrongs to rights, when all grief will turn to joy. Jesus will be central to that day, which will end with the unveiling of God's new world. There, those who have already died and those who are still alive will both alike be given renewed bodies to serve God joyfully in this new creation. You're not going to float away into the clouds. And you're going to look like you, but you're going to be like the perfect version of you. You know, the version of you that you wish you were now, right? It's good news, right? Particularly for those of us who are getting a bit older. And the other thing to notice is that work itself is redeemed. That the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve, it's fully restored here. We're not just going to sit around going, oh, it's all really nice for the rest of our lives. You know, and thankfully it's not going to be one endless worship set as good as Steve was. Like, actually there's work to do, but redeemed work. Uh, sustaining this wonderful world, creating and and continuing to sustain the life that God has created us for. So Revelation 21 verses 24 and 26 speak of this city where the the kings of the earth, that's you and I because we're royalty in the new heaven and the earth, we will bring good things into the city. We'll create things. It's not like a passive just hang out for the rest of our lives. How exciting is that? A couple of other things to notice before we wrap this up. There's a couple of parallels that we need to see with Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the garden, to make sense of how God has been doing this amazing work of redemption. Two things to notice. If you, back to chapter 21, verses 9 right through to the end, describe this new city, this new Jerusalem. I have a look at it another time, but it's, it's massive. They reckon it's like if you use the um, dimensions that are in there, it's 1,500 miles wide and long. It's enormous. Now, remember, it's apocalyptic language. It's not literal. But what are we meant to understand? Well, two things. One, it's big enough for everybody. It's big enough for everybody. But the second thing to notice is it's a perfect cube just like the Holy of Holies was in the uh, Old Testament temple they built, which God filled with his Holy Spirit. And that's where God dwelled. He dwelled in the Holy of Holies. This is the new Holy of Holies. But it's, it's one big temple. The whole thing is the Holy of Holies, where God dwells by his Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? It's this incredible picture, I think, for us. The second thing to notice, just have a look uh, in, verse 20, in chapter 22. Uh, the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God uh, down the middle of the great street. On each side of the river stood what? The tree of life. Remember the tree of life that Adam and Eve can't access because of sin? Well, once again, you and I have access to the tree of life. We will live forever. Death has gone. You and I will live forever in God's bright, brave, bright new world.
So what does all this mean? What are the implications? Stanley Grenz, who's a theologian, he, he says something really helpful, I think. He says, he talks about this idea of an eschatological call on the church. Now, eschatology is, this, is the theology of the end times. So the eschatological call on us is, to, is really, how do we live in the present in light of the future? Given that this is how the story ends and we're meant to be living towards that, how should we be living? And he suggests three things. There's a call to evangelism. Uh, and he actually talks about zealous declaration. Like those who are really gripped by our story and how good it is and the end of it and the fact that it's for all people should be people who go and declare with some zeal the good news of Jesus Christ. We've got some work to do. But let me suggest that you do one thing between now and Christmas Day, and that's you invite your friends in a week's time. You get them in the building, we'll do the rest. We do carol services really well. I'm confident of that. Yeah, they will have a very simple, uh, not like a Bible-thumping message, but they'll be invited to consider Jesus Christ and sing some carols and drink some nice mulled wine. But like, you have to inhabit the story. Uh, we have to live it out, but we also have to tell it. We have the best story. Jennifer Welsh, this brilliant genius brain, she cannot think of a better story than the one that is clearly failing all around us. We've got it. We need to go tell it. The second thing he suggests is there's a call to holiness, what he calls determined preparation. Are you, am I, doing everything I need to do so that I am the best bit of the temple that I can be right now? Remember, we're the living stones in which God dwells. <coughs> Am I dealing with my stuff? I'm having counselling. Still, still having counselling. Like it's going to take a long while. Because I don't want to be broken in the ways I am. I don't want to keep doing the things I do. I want to be free of that. I want to be what God called me to be. But I want to be holy. More holy than I am. I, I know you're thinking I'm, you know. Joking. <laughs> Owen's shaking his head. He's like, nah, ah, nah, ah. But, like, I, I do. It really matters to me. Does it matter to you? And then finally, he says, it's a call to steadfastness. It, it's to be a people who, who look out into the world, look into the future, and, and, we, and who, who stand firm, who stand for Jesus, who stand with people, who stand for the gospel, who, who keep going because we know how the story ends. And we know that history is going to do crazy things and people are going to vote for nutters and all of these sorts of things. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, 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 but at the end of the day, Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and the world will be put to rights. And so between now and then, we stand firm. He talks about courageous tenacity. I like that. We talk here about prophetic defiance, living in such a way that we defy history as a prophetic statement about a new world that is yet to come in its fullness. And there'll come a day when we stand before Jesus and he asks us how we lived. And then he'll look us in the eye and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're my beloved. I created this for you. I redeemed you for this. You helped build it. Come on in. Be with me forever. 
And we'll say, hallelujah, hallelujah. And between now and then, we've got work to do. Let's stand. What I'd love us to do as we finish is say together something called the Nicene Creed, which is a statement of faith, if you like, that the early church wrote at a time when people didn't have books and iPads and things like that as a way of actually learning the story and declaring their faith. It was a way of saying, this is my story. And so as we say this together, it's a, it's a prophetic defiant statement. It's, a, it's an act of prophetic defiance. But hopefully what you'll hear as we go through it is the story we've been teaching over the last six weeks, which is our story. It's our faith. It's what we believe. And my prayer is that as you say it, something will rise in you afresh, a fresh courage. Not just to hang on in there, but actually to really go live it boldly and radically. Can we do that together? Is that all right? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Do take a seat.